Chapter Three, Part Two of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen through nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Three, Part Two. The month of May passed with few incidents of importance. Hurley, our handyman, installed our small electric lighting plant and placed lights for occasional use in the observatory, the meteorological station, and various other points. We could not afford to use the electric lamps freely. Hurley also rigged two powerful lights on poles projecting from the ship to port and starboard. These lamps would illuminate the dogloos brilliantly on the darkest winter's day and would be invaluable in the event of the flow breaking during the dark days of winter. We could imagine what it would mean to get fifty dogs aboard without lights while the flow was breaking and rafting under our feet. May 24th, Empire Day, was celebrated with the singing of patriotic songs in the Ritz, where all hands joined in wishing a speedy victory for the British arms. We could not know how the war was progressing, but we hoped that the Germans had already been driven from France, and that the Russian armies had put the seal on the Allies' success. The war was a constant subject of discussion aboard the Endurance, and many campaigns were fought on the map during the long months of drifting. The moon in the latter part of May was sweeping continuously through our starlit sky in great high circles. The weather generally was good, with constant minus temperatures. The log on May 27th recorded, Brilliantly fine clear weather with bright moonlight throughout. The moon's rays are wonderfully strong, making midnight seem as light as an ordinary overcast midday in temperate climes. The great clearness of the atmosphere probably accounts for our having eight hours of twilight with a beautiful soft golden glow to the northward. A little rime and glazed frost are found aloft. The temperature is minus twenty degrees Fahrenheit. A few wisps of cirrus clouds are seen, and a little frost smoke shows in one or two directions but the cracks and leads near the ship appear to have frozen over again. Crean had started to take the pups out for runs, and it was very amusing to see them with their rolling canter just managing to keep abreast by the sledge and occasionally cocking an eye with an appealing look in the hope of being taken aboard for a ride. As an addition to their foster father, Crean, the pups had adopted Amundsen. They tyrannized over him most unmercifully. It was a common sight to see him, the biggest dog in the pack, sitting out in the cold with an air of philosophic resignation while a corpulent pup occupied the entrance to his dogloo. The intruder was generally the pup Nelson, who just showed his forepaws and face, and one was fairly sure to find Nellie, Roger, and Toby coiled up comfortably behind him. At hoosh time, Crean had to stand by Amundsen's food, since otherwise the pups would eat the big dog's ration while he stood back to give them fair play. Sometimes their consciences would smite them, and they would drag around a seal's head, half a penguin, or a large lump of frozen meat or blubber to Amundsen's kennel for rent. It was interesting to watch the big dog play with them, seizing them by throat or neck in what appeared to be a fierce fashion, while really quite gentle with them, and all the time teaching them how to hold their own in the world, and putting them up to all the tricks of dog life. The drift of the endurance in the grip of the pack continued without incident of importance through June. Pressure was reported occasionally, but the ice in the immediate vicinity of the ship remained firm. 
The light was now very bad except in the period when the friendly moon was above the horizon. A faint twilight round about noon of each day reminded us of the sun and assisted us in the important work of exercising the dogs. The care of the teams was our heaviest responsibility in those days. The movement of the flows was beyond all human control, and there was nothing to be gained by allowing one's mind to struggle with the problems of the future, though it was hard to avoid anxiety at times. The conditioning and training of the dogs seemed essential, whatever fate might be in store for us, and the teams were taken out by their drivers whenever the weather permitted. Rivalries arose, as might have been expected, and on the 15th of the month a great race, the Antarctic Derby, took place. It was a notable event. The betting had been heavy, and every man aboard the ship stood to win or lose on the result of the contest. Some money had been staked, but the wagers that thrilled were those involving stores of chocolate and cigarettes. The course had been laid off from Khyber Pass, at the eastern end of the old lead ahead of the ship, to a point clear of the jib-boom, a distance of about seven hundred yards. Five teams went out in the dim noon twilight, with a zero temperature and an aurora flickering faintly to the southward. The starting signal was to be given by the flashing of a light on the meteorological station. I was appointed starter, Worsley was judge, and James was timekeeper. The boatswain, with a straw hat added to his usual Antarctic attire, stood on a box near the winning post, and was assisted by a couple of shady characters to shout the odds, which were displayed on a board hung round his neck, six to four on Wild, Evans on Crean, two to one against Hurley, six to one against Macklin, and eight to one against McElroy. Canvas handkerchiefs fluttered from an improvised grandstand, and the pups, which had never seen such strange happenings before, sat round and howled with excitement. The spectators could not see far in the dim light, but they heard the shouts of the drivers as the teams approached, and greeted the victory of the favorite with a roar of cheering that must have sounded strange indeed to any seals or penguins that happened to be in our neighborhood. Wild's time was two minutes, sixteen seconds, or at the rate of ten and a half miles per hour for the course. We celebrated Midwinter's Day on the 22nd. The twilight extended over a period of about six hours that day, and there was a good light at noon from the moon, and also a northern glow with wisps of beautiful pink cloud along the horizon. A sounding gave 262 fathoms with a mud bottom. No land was in sight from the masthead, although our range of vision extended probably a full degree to the westward. The day was observed as a holiday, necessary work only being undertaken, and after the best dinner the cook could provide, all hands gathered in the Ritz, where speeches, songs, and toasts occupied the evening. After supper, at midnight, we sang God Save the King, and wished each other all success in the days of sunshine and effort that lay ahead. At this time the Endurance was making an unusually rapid drift to the north, under the influence of a fresh southerly to southwesterly breeze. We traveled thirty-nine miles to the north in five days before a breeze that only once attained the force of a gale, and then for no more than an hour. The absence of strong winds, in comparison with the almost unceasing winter blizzards of the Ross Sea, was a feature of the Waddell Sea that impressed itself upon me during the winter months. Another race took place a few days after the Derby. The two crack teams, driven by Hurley and Wilde, met in a race from Khyber Pass. Wilde's team, pulling 910 pounds, or 130 pounds per dog, covered the 700 yards in 2 minutes 9 seconds, or at the rate of 11.1 miles per hour. 
Hurley's team, with the same load, did the run in 2 minutes 16 seconds. The race was awarded by the judge to Hurley, owing to Wilde failing to weigh in correctly. I happened to be a part of the load on his sledge, and a skid over some new drift within fifty yards of the winning post resulted in my being left on the snow. It should be said in justice to the dogs that this accident, while justifying the disqualification, could not have made any material difference in the time. The approach of the returning sun was indicated by beautiful sunrise glows on the horizon in the early days of July. We had nine hours twilight on the 10th, and the northern sky low to the horizon was tinted with gold for about seven hours. Numerous cracks and leads extended in all directions to within three hundred yards of the ship. Thin, wavering black lines close to the northern horizon were probably distant leads refracted into the sky. Sounds of moderate pressure came to our ears occasionally, but the ship was not involved. At midnight on the 11th, a crack in the lead ahead of the Endurance opened out rapidly, and by 2 a.m. was over 200 yards wide in places, with an area of open water to the southwest. Sounds of pressure were heard along this lead, which soon closed to a width of about 30 yards, and then froze over. The temperature at that time was minus 23 degrees Fahrenheit. The most severe blizzard we had experienced in the Waddell Sea swept down upon the Endurance on the evening of the 13th, and by breakfast time on the following morning, the kennels to the windward or southern side of the ship were buried under five feet of drift. I gave orders that no man should venture beyond the kennels. The ship was invisible at a distance of fifty yards, and it was impossible to preserve one's sense of direction in the raging wind and suffocating drift. To walk against the gale was out of the question. Face and eyes became snowed up within two minutes, and serious frostbites would have been the penalty of perseverance. The dogs stayed in their kennels for the most part, the old stagers putting out a paw occasionally in order to keep open a breathing hole. By evening the gale had attained a force of sixty or seventy miles an hour, and the ship was trembling under the attack. But we were snug enough in our quarters aboard until the morning of the 14th, when all hands turned out to shovel the snow from deck and kennels. The wind was still keen and searching, with a temperature of something like minus thirty degrees Fahrenheit, and it was necessary for us to be on guard against frostbite. At least a hundred tons of snow were piled against the bows and port side, where the weight of the drift had forced the flow downward. The lead ahead had opened out during the night, cracked the pack from north to south, and frozen over again, adding three hundred yards to the distance between the ship and Khyber Pass. The breakdown gang had completed its work by lunchtime. The gale was then decreasing, and the three days old moon showed as a red crescent on the northern horizon. The temperature during the blizzard had ranged from minus 21 degrees to minus 33.5 degrees Fahrenheit. It is usual for the temperature to rise during a blizzard, and the failure to produce any fawn effect of this nature suggested an absence of high land for at least 200 miles to the south and southwest. The weather did not clear until the 16th. We saw then that the appearance of the surrounding pack had been altered completely by the blizzard. The island flow containing the endurance still stood fast, but cracks and masses of ice thrown up by pressure could be seen in all directions. An area of open water was visible on the horizon to the north, with a water indication in the northern sky. The ice pressure, which was indicated by distant rumblings and the appearance of formidable ridges, was increasingly a cause of anxiety. The areas of disturbance were gradually approaching the ship. 
During July 21st, we could bear the grinding and crashing of the working flows to the southwest and west, and could see cracks opening, working, and closing ahead. The ice is rafting up to a height of 10 or 15 feet in places. The opposing flows are moving against one another at the rate of about 200 yards per hour. The noise resembles the roar of heavy, distant surf. Standing on the stirring ice, one can imagine it is disturbed by the breathing and tossing of a muddy giant below. Early on the afternoon of the 22nd, a two-foot crack running southwest and northeast for a distance of about two miles approached to within 35 yards of the port quarter. I had all the sledges brought aboard and set a special watch in case it became necessary to get the dogs off the floe in a hurry. This crack was the result of heavy pressure 300 yards away on the port bow, where huge blocks of ice were piled up in wild and threatening confusion. The pressure at that point was enormous. Blocks weighing many tons were raised 15 feet above the level of the flow. I arranged to divide the night watches with Worsley and Wild, and none of us had much rest. The ship was shaken by heavy bumps, and we were on the alert to see that no dogs had fallen into cracks. The morning light showed that our island had been reduced considerably during the night. Our long months of rest and safety seemed to be at an end, and a period of stress had begun. During the following day I had a store of sledging provisions, oil, matches, and other essentials placed on the upper deck handy to the starboard quarter boat, so as to be in readiness for a sudden emergency. The ice was grinding and working steadily to the southward, and in the evening some large cracks appeared on the port quarter, while a crack alongside opened out to fifteen yards. The blizzard seemed to have set the ice in strong movement towards the north, and the southwesterly and west-southwesterly winds that prevailed two days out of three, maintained the drift. I hoped that this would continue unchecked, since our chance of getting clear of the pack early in the spring appeared to depend upon our making a good northing. Soundings at this time gave depths of from 186 to 190 fathoms, with a glacial mud bottom. No land was in sight. The light was improving. A great deal of ice pressure was heard and observed in all directions during the 25th, much of it close to the port quarter of the ship. On the starboard bow, huge blocks of ice, weighing many tons and five feet in thickness, were pushed up on the old floe to a height of fifteen to twenty feet. The floe that held the endurance was swung to and fro by the pressure during the day, but came back to the old bearing before midnight. The ice for miles around is much looser. There are numerous cracks and short leads to the northeast and southeast. Ridges are being forced up in all directions, and there is a water sky to the southeast. It would be a relief to be able to make some effort on our own behalf, but we can do nothing until the ice releases our ship. If the flows continue to loosen, we may break out within the next few weeks and resume the fight. In the meantime, the pressure continues, and it is hard to foresee the outcome. Just before noon today, July 26th, the top of the sun appeared by refraction for one minute, 79 days after our last sunset. A few minutes earlier, a small patch of the sun had been thrown up on one of the black streaks above the horizon. All hands are cheered by the indication that the end of the winter darkness is near. Clark finds that with returning daylight, the diatoms are again appearing. His nets and line are stained a pale yellow, and much of the newly formed ice has also a faint brown or yellow tinge. The diatoms cannot multiply without light, and the ice formed since February can be distinguished in the pressure ridges by its clear blue color. 
The older masses of ice are of a dark, earthy brown, dull yellow, or reddish brown. The breakup of our flow came suddenly on Sunday, August 1st, just one year after the Endurance left the southwest India docks on the voyage to the far south. The position was latitude 72 degrees, 26 minutes south, longitude 48 degrees, 10 minutes west. The morning brought a moderate southwesterly gale with heavy snow, and at 8 a.m., after some morning movements of the ice, the flow cracked 40 yards off the starboard bow. Two hours later, the flow began to break up all around us, under pressure, and the ship listed over 10 degrees to starboard. I had the dogs and sledges brought aboard at once, and the gangway hoisted. The animals behaved well. They came aboard eagerly, as though realizing their danger, and were placed in their quarters on deck without a single fight occurring. The pressure was cracking the flow rapidly, rafting it close to the slip, and forcing masses of ice beneath the keel. Presently the endurance listed heavily to port against the gale, and at the same time was forced ahead, astern, and sideways several times by the grinding flows. She received one or two hard nips, but resisted them without as much as a creak. It looked at one stage as if the ship was to be made the plaything of successive flows, and I was relieved when she came to a standstill with a large piece of our old dock under the starboard bilge. I had the boats cleared away ready for lowering, and got up some additional stores, and set a double watch. All hands were warned to stand by, get what sleep they could, and have their warmest clothing at hand. Around us lay the ruins of Dogtown, amid the debris of pressure ridges. Some of the little dwellings had been crushed flat beneath blocks of ice. Others had been swallowed and pulverized when the ice opened beneath them and closed again. It was a sad sight, but my chief concern just then was the safety of the rudder, which was being attacked viciously by the ice. We managed to pull away a large lump that had become jammed between the rudder and the stern post, but I could see that damage had been done, though a close examination was not possible that day. After the ship had come to a standstill in her new position, very heavy pressure was set up. Some of the trenels were started, and the beams buckled slightly under the terrific stresses. But the endurance had been built to withstand the attacks of the ice, and she lifted bravely as the flows drove beneath her. The effects of the pressure around us were awe-inspiring. Mighty blocks of ice, gripped between meeting flows, rose slowly till they jumped like cherry stones squeezed between thumb and finger. The pressure of millions of tons of moving ice was crushing and smashing inexorably. If the ship was once gripped firmly, her fate would be sealed. The gale from the southwest blew all night and moderated during the afternoon of the second to a stiff breeze. The pressure had almost ceased. Apparently the gale had driven the southern pack down upon us, causing congestion in our area. The pressure had stopped when the whole of the pack got into motion. The gale had given us some northing, but it had dealt the endurance what might prove to be a severe blow. The rudder had been driven hard over to starboard and the blade partially torn away from the rudder head. Heavy masses of ice were still jammed against the stern, and it was impossible to ascertain the extent of the damage at that time. I felt that it would be impossible in any case to effect repairs in the moving pack. The ship lay steady all night, and the sole sign of continuing pressure was an occasional slight rumbling shock. We rigged shelters and kennels for the dogs inboard. The weather on August 3rd was overcast and misty. We had nine hours of twilight, with good light at noon. There was no land in sight for ten miles from the masthead. 
The pack, as far as the eye could reach, was in a condition of chaos, much rafted and consolidated, with very large pressure ridges in all directions. At 9 p.m., a rough altitude of Canopus gave the latitude at 71 degrees 55 minutes, 17 seconds south. The drift, therefore, had been about 37 miles to the north in three days. Four of the poorest dogs were shot this day. They were suffering severely from worms, and we could not afford to keep sick dogs under the changed conditions. The sun showed through the clouds on the northern horizon for an hour on the 4th. There was no open water to be seen from aloft in any direction. We saw from the masthead to west-southwest an appearance of barrier, land, or a very long iceberg about twenty-odd miles away, but the horizon clouded over before we could determine its nature. We tried twice to make a sounding that day, but failed on each occasion. The Kelvin machine gave no bottom at the full length of the line, 370 fathoms. After much labor, we made a hole in the ice near the stern post, large enough for the Lucas machine, with a 32-pound lead, but this appeared to be too light. The machine stopped at 452 fathoms, leaving us in doubt as to whether the bottom had been reached. Then, in heaving up, we lost the lead, the thin wire cutting its way into the ice and snapping. All hands and the carpenter were busy this day, making and placing kennels on the upper deck, and by nightfall all the dogs were comfortably housed, ready for any weather. The sun showed through the clouds above the northern horizon for nearly an hour. The remaining days of August were comparatively uneventful. The ice around the ship froze firm again, and little movement occurred in our neighborhood. The training of the dogs, including the puppies, proceeded actively, and provided exercise as well as occupation. The drift to the northwest continued steadily. We had bad luck with soundings, the weather interfering at times, and the gear breaking on several occasions, but a big increase in the depth showed that we had passed over the edge of the Waddell Sea Plateau. A sounding of about 1,700 fathoms on August 10th agreed fairly well with Filchner's 1,924 fathoms, 130 miles east of our then position. An observation at noon of the 8th had given us latitude 71 degrees 23 minutes south, longitude 49 degrees 13 minutes west. Minus temperatures prevailed still, but the daylight was increasing. We captured a few emperor penguins which were making their way to the southwest. Ten penguins taken on the 19th were all in poor condition, and their stomachs contained nothing but stones and a few cuttlefish beaks. A sounding on the 17th gave 1,676 fathoms, ten miles west of the charted position of Morel Land. No land could be seen from the masthead, and I decided that Morel Land must be added to the long list of Antarctic islands and continental coasts that on close investigation have resolved themselves into icebergs. On clear days, we could get an extended view in all directions from the masthead, and the line of the pack was broken only by familiar bergs. About 100 bergs were in view on a fine day, and they seemed practically the same as when they started their drift with us nearly seven months earlier. The scientists wished to inspect some of the neighboring bergs at close quarters, but sledge traveling outside the well-trodden area immediately around the ship proved difficult and occasionally dangerous. On August 20th, for example, Worsley, Hurley, and Greenstreet started off for the Rampart Berg and got onto a lead of young ice that undulated perilously beneath their feet. A quick turn saved them. A wonderful mirage of the Fata Morgana type was visible on August 20th. 
The day was clear and bright, with a blue sky overhead and some rime aloft. The distant pack is thrown up into towering, barrier-like cliffs, which are reflected in blue lakes and lanes of water at their base. Great white and golden cities of oriental appearance at close intervals along these cliff-tops indicate distant bergs, some not previously known to us. Floating above these are wavering violet and creamy lines of still more remote bergs and pack. The lines rise and fall, tremble, dissipate, and reappear in an endless transformation scene. The southern pack and bergs catching the sun's rays are golden, but to the north the ice masses are purple. Here the bergs assume changing forms, first a castle, then a balloon just clear of the horizon, that changes swiftly into an immense mushroom, a mosque, or a cathedral. The principal characteristic is the vertical lengthening of the object, a small pressure ridge being given the appearance of a line of battlements or towering cliffs. The mirage is produced by refraction and is intensified by the columns of comparatively warm air rising from several cracks and leads that have opened 8 to 20 miles away, north and south. We noticed this day that a considerable change had taken place in our position relative to the Rampart Berg. It appeared that a big lead had opened, and that there had been some differential movement of the pack. The opening movement might presage renewed pressure. A few hours later, the dog teams, returning from exercise, crossed a narrow crack that had appeared ahead of the ship. This crack opened quickly to sixty feet, and would have given us trouble if the dogs had been left on the wrong side. It closed on the 25th, and pressure followed in its neighborhood. On August 24th, we were two miles north of the latitude of Morell's farthest south, and over ten degrees of longitude, or more than two hundred miles, west of his position. From the masthead, no land could be seen within twenty miles, and no land over five hundred feet altitude could have escaped observation on our side of longitude fifty-two degrees west. A sounding of one thousand nine hundred fathoms on August 25th was further evidence of the non-existence of New South Greenland. There was some movement of the ice near the ship during the concluding days of the month. All hands were called out in the night of August 26th, sounds of pressure having been followed by the cracking of the ice alongside the ship, but the trouble did not develop immediately. Late on the night of the 31st, the ice began to work ahead of the ship and along the port side. Creaking and groaning of timbers, accompanied by loud snapping sounds fore and aft, told their story of strain. The pressure continued during the following day, beams and deck planks occasionally buckling to the strain. The ponderous flows were grinding against each other under the influence of wind and current, and our ship seemed to occupy for the time being an undesirable position near the center of the disturbance, but she resisted staunchly and showed no sign of water in the bilges, although she had not been pumped out for six months. The pack extended to the horizon in every direction. I calculated that we were 250 miles from the nearest known land to the westward, and more than 500 miles from the nearest outpost of civilization, Wilhelmina Bay. I hoped we would not have to undertake a march across the moving ice fields. The endurance we knew to be stout and true, but no ship ever built by man could live if taken fairly in the grip of the floes and prevented from rising to the surface of the grinding ice. These were anxious days. In the early morning of September 2nd, the ship jumped and shook to the accompaniment of cracks and groans, and some of the men who had been in the berths hurried on deck. The pressure eased a little later in the day, when the ice on the port side broke away from the ship to just abaft the main rigging. 
The endurance was still held aft and at the rudder, and a large mass of ice could be seen adhering to the port bow, rising to within three feet of the surface. I wondered if this ice had got its grip by piercing the sheathing. End of chapter 3